This is Docera Digest Podcast, breaking down health concepts. This podcast is brought to you by Docera Life Center. This innovative clinic is finding new solutions to the evolving challenges mankind faces in the 21st century. By utilizing cutting-edge technology and testing, they find root causes and also offer treatment with energy and nutrition. What is the mission? To dynamically change lives for the better while impacting families for generations. The information shared directly or indirectly in the Docera Digest podcast is not to be understood as or misconstrued as medical advice. This information is not a replacement for your current health provider who is acutely aware of your current health state and course of treatment. Any information shared about a product or service discussed by any host or guest on this podcast is not to be interpreted as a doctor-patient relationship. Hi, I'm Dr. Kyson Frank. Welcome back to Docera Digest, where today we are starting our new series on methylation and epigenetics. So I am excited about this series. It'll be very interesting because there's so much information out there and there's so much that we're still trying to learn. So we are fortunate to have Dr. Bowers as part of our clinic. This subject matter has been a passion for him for decades, right? So he has taught on the subject professionally across the U.S. to other doctors who are interested in learning and adopting these cutting-edge approaches to healthcare. He is going to help us bring a lot of knowledge and depth to the subject. This is a complex subject, and while there's a lot of depth we're going to bring to it, we're going to go over a lot of information, but we can't go as deep as we'd like because we don't have that much time, and you would stop listening. <laughs> or fall so we want to introduce the topics and discuss how relevant they are to our current health and future health. There are going to be a lot of SNP codes and acronyms, and we're going to go into what that means here in a little bit, that will make your head spin. So we're not going to focus intently on all these different labels, so much as we want to talk about how they affect your body's ability to adapt to your environment and other challenges to your body. And with that, let's get started. We're going to kick it over to Dr. Bowers to take it off. Thanks, Dr. Kyson. He's right. We are excited about uh, this topic and going through all this. Um, I'm excited to introduce something to you that maybe you've never thought about or haven't heard about or don't know about. Um, but the top of the epigenetics, which is what I really want to go into, as well as other key factors involved with how your specific genes, and we say that term, we're going to talk about a specific concept of your DNA. I'll explain that in a second. But we think it's something that you adapt to uh, in the world that you live in. And we'll go into great detail through this process. We're going to try to take the complex and make it simple. That's really the, the essence of what we do. So I believe that the concepts of epigenetics is something that has and will forever change healthcare and our world. It will open all kinds of doors for personalized healthcare. With it, we will be able to customize healthcare to each individual and make it very unique for that individual person. Eventually, we will not treat a person as a disease collective, meaning, oh, you have diabetes. Well, here's what we do for diabetes. No, we will individualize or customize it just for you in your case. Meaning that we will not treat all heart conditions, lung conditions, diabetes, thyroid issues, hormone issues, mental issues, or autoimmune diseases the same way for everyone. We will be able to look at your unique genome and treat you for your specific needs. And the good news is that right now we can do some of this already. After being in healthcare for almost 40 years, I'm excited to see where we'll go in the very near future. It was all the way back in 1987 that I first began to study the human DNA. That is when I became involved with researchers around the world via bulletin boards. Remember those? 
Wow, that was before internet. You don't remember those, Luke. <laughs> it was before the web. Wow, that's how we connected uh, on this topic. We'd look at all the research being done on the DNA and try to figure out how that would change our healthcare treatment. Then in 1999, they published the first DNA sequencing with what they then called junk DNA. They thought they understood most of it, but they didn't. Then in 2003, the scientists published what they had completed sequencing 92% of the DNA, and they felt very confident in what they had found. Yet it would take until March of this year, 2023, before they completed the last 8% of the human genome. However, since 2003, we began to look more specifically at all the pieces of the DNA. So what is DNA? DNA, or deoxyribonucleic acid, is the hereditary material that we receive from each parent. Nearly every cell in a person's body has the same DNA. Most of the DNA is located in the cell nucleus, which we call nuclear DNA, but a small amount can also be found in the mitochondria, which we call mitochondrial or mtDNA. DNA is basically made up of five atoms, carbons, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, and hydrogen. And for those of you who are listening and recall my previous talks on water, that's why we need hydrogen. And we know that our DNA is a combination of these two atoms in two different structures. First, there are two strands of alternating five carbon sugar molecules called deoxyribose and phosphate groups that combine around each other to resemble a twisted ladder. For those of you that have seen uh, a DNA strand, we call it a double helix, and that's considered the backbone or the sides of the ladder itself of the DNA. Second of all, the ladder steps are what we refer to as the genome or specifically gene. And they're made up of four different protein nitrogen bases called adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thymine. And this is where the real DNA code is stored in those latter steps. So the human DNA consists of over 3 billion nitrogen uh, bases, some say up to 30 billion, and more than 99% of those bases are the same in all people. So we're just 1% different, and yet we're only half percent different from the animal world. Isn't that strange? The order or the sequence of these bases determine the information available for building and maintaining an orgasm. Orgasm? How about an organism? Whoa! <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> let's, let's redo that one. Uh, that's coming up in a different talk in a different talk. <laughs> <laughs> We're starting. <laughs> I know you're excited, but really? <laughs> I'm telling you. The funny thing is, when I was writing this, I'm going, I got to make sure that I, I don't say that word. And my brain went there anyway. All right, so here we go. The order or the sequence of these base, uh, bases determines the formation available for building and maintaining an organism similar to the way in which the letters of an alphabet appear in a certain order to form words or sentences. So sometimes we refer to that DNA as the library because of the very context that we think about. You have to have certain letters to make certain words, to make sentences, to make paragraphs, to make a book. Most important aspect of DNA is then that it can replicate or make copies of itself. Each strand of DNA in the double helix can serve as a pattern for duplicating the sequences of the bases. This is critical when cells divide because each new cell needs to have an exact copy of the DNA present in each cell. Now, we've been told previously that our DNA never changes, and to a very specific point, that may be true, meaning the long strands of the DNA. However, we now know that our DNA does change as we age. In fact, when we are born, we don't even have all of the DNA that we will end up with. And it is speculated that the internal aspect of our DNA changes 
hundreds to thousands of times per minute. Some of these changes are epigenetic, meaning that they are modified without altering the DNA sequence itself. We also know that the epigenetic aspect of this, whoops, we'll go back to that. I hit it too fast. We also know that the epigenetic changes affect how genes are turned on or off or are expressed or not expressed. Thus, they help regulate how cells in different parts of the body use the same or different genetic coding. So then, what is epigenetics? What does that term really mean? Basically, epigenetics is a study of environmental factors, exposure to certain chemicals and ultraviolet radiation, the effects of electricity, chemicals on our food, genetically altered foods, our diet and nutrition, our mental stress and physical stress, our habits, our behaviors, and our reactions to life, as well as any other exposure to external factors that can cause changes that affect the way that our genes work. Unlike genetic changes, most epigenetic changes are potentially reversible and they do not change our DNA sequence, but they can change how our body reads a DNA sequence. Now, those external factors are what cause internal reactions and they become the agents of genetic change that have potential to create adaptogenic or mutagenic reactions. And later in this series, we'll go into that in more detail. Every time DNA is passed from one generation to the next, it has accumulated hundreds of new mutations that continues going forward in each generation. So what epigenetics does is to look at the bonds that connect the genomes to each other. We look for what is called a single nucleotide polymorphism, or the acronym SNPs, S-N-P-S, as that is the most abundant genetic variation in the human genome. Though we generally refer to these as SNPs, it is really more like a swap of a single nucleotide on one of the rungs of the DNA ladder. Basically, a SNP occurs when one side of a single nucleotide differs from the majority of the expectation on the other side. SNPs occur, can occur in what we refer to as coding regions, non-coding regions, or between the genes, which is called the intergenic aspect. Now, SNPs can vary in terms of severity and benefit due to its location and its redundancy. Our bodies typically have backup pathways for redundancy, but the redundancy is not as good as the primary pathway. Now, we do know that everyone has SNPs. The main question is, where are those SNPs and what effect does it have? Generally speaking, by itself, a single SNP has no real meaning or impact. However, when we identify the specific SNPs and look at them in their appropriate systems, the coding versus the non-coding or the intergenic pathways, that is when we can find the complexity of the SNP and its potential effect on the body. The biggest aspect of what we will be uh, referring to is called the methylation pathway and its effects on our bodies. And we're going to go into detail on this in later series. Why do we want to evaluate the epigenetics of a person? Well, by doing an epigenome analysis, we tap into a very specific prognostic assessment tool. By doing this, we are looking at the prognosis in a forward-based aspect upon the alteration in the epigenome that would lead to a reduced metabolic state of function that could ultimately be developed into a specific condition or some form of disease. What? What's that mean? All right. Basically, what we're doing is we're looking upstream before that we see the effects downstream. If we can find a problem upstream, we can stop the effects downstream. So then what is the key takeaway? Epigenetics is the process of looking at the epigenome that has been exposed to external factors and its potential for a health and or an altered state of dysfunction 
that can lead to an altered body that then can lead to some form of disease. And now let's turn this over to Dr. Luke so he can explain how these genes really do work. Dr. Luke. Thanks, Dr. Bowers. So, yeah, talking about how genes work, first let's talk about proteins. Um, but first, before we do that, we have to recall what are called the levels of organization. Uh, so you take the smallest component of matter, that's an atom. You put two or more atoms together, you get a molecule. Put two or more molecules together, you get a macromolecule. Now let's stop there for a moment. Proteins are large molecules or a macromolecule, if you will, and are made up of hundreds or sometimes thousands of smaller molecules called amino acids. And there are 20 types of amino acids that can be combined to make a protein. How many amino acids and in what sequence they are in will determine the shape and structure and function of that given protein. And the functions of proteins vary widely within the body, but some examples are enzymes, immunoglobulins, antibodies, transport proteins, messenger proteins, and more. So how do genes direct the production of these proteins? Well, if you've ever taken a basic biology class, whether in high school or college, you may be familiar with the terms transcription and translation. If you're not familiar with this, then that's okay, because we're going to briefly highlight this, because this is known as the central dogma in biology. So this whole process of how genes direct the production of proteins is very tightly regulated and occurs within our cells. And transcription is the process that occurs within the nucleus of our cells. And this is where DNA information is transferred into what's called RNA, as Dr. Bowers mentioned earlier, specifically messenger RNA. And then translation is when this messenger RNA goes outside of the nucleus into the cytoplasm of cells, where it interacts with what's called a ribosome, which reads or translates this messenger RNA. And based on the sequence or message of that mRNA, a new molecule called transfer RNA or tRNA assembles that protein one amino acid at a time. And this process of transcription and translation is known as genetic expression. So can genes be turned on or off in cells? Short answer is yes, as Dr. Bowers has already alluded to earlier. Each cell expresses or turns on only a fraction of its genes. The rest of the genes are repressed or turned off. And this is known as gene regulation. And this is why and how cells know how to make a brain cell look and act different than, say, a liver cell. And gene regulation is happening constantly throughout the body and is largely dependent, again, as Dr. Bowers mentioned, upon our environment and the signals that the cells receive from our environmental factors. And more often, gene regulation occurs at the level of transcription where DNA is converted to that messenger RNA. And what's interesting is, according to the NIH or the National Institute of Health, this process is complex and not fully understood. So we're constantly learning about it. And I want to briefly just touch on what the epigenome is. I know Dr. Bowers already hit on a lot of that, but just to echo him. So you break down that word, epi means above in Greek, and then genome, of course, referring to the genes. Simply put, the epigenome refers to the, all of the chemical compounds that are added to a single gene, which can regulate that gene's activity. And these chemicals are added to a gene and can affect that gene's expression. So in essence, this is another on and off switch to genetic expression. And again, as Dr. Bauer said, this epigenome is largely under environmental influence, such as diet, lifestyle, stress, toxic, toxic exposure, and more. And I credit Dr. Bowers with this phrase that we highlight on the top of our genetic reports when we're going over this with a patient. Genetics load your gun, the, your thoughts aim this gun, and your environment ultimately is what's going to pull the trigger. In other words, your DNA doesn't necessarily have to be your destiny. 
A pathway you'll hear a lot in the, about in this series is called the methylation pathway. And when it comes to methylation, this is the process by which a methyl group, which is one carbon atom and three hydrogen atoms, are added to a specific gene, and that gene is silenced or turned off, and no protein is therefore produced from that gene. And to close my segment out here, the reason that all this is important and why we're talking about it, and here's your take home, is because when an error occurs within the epigenetic process, such as modifying the wrong gene or failing to add a compound to a gene, this can lead to abnormal gene activity and cause genetic disorders. Furthermore, conditions including metabolic disorders, specific cancers, oxidative stress, inflammation, food sensitivities, degenerative disorders, and more all have been leaked to epigenetic errors. And we'll touch more on practical take-homes as far as how we can in theory help or influence or manipulate this epigenetic pathway to help patients achieve optimal health and wellness in later episodes of this series. So that's just a crash introductory course. So I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Dr. Caleb, who's going to talk about genetic mutations. Dr. Caleb. All right. Thank you, Dr. Luke. So growing up in the 80s and 90s, hearing the words genetic mutations, that would first make me think of Spider-Man's ability to climb walls, Wolverine's supernatural healing, Storm's ability to control the weather, Nightcrawler's teleportation abilities, and Bruce Banner's transformation into the Hulk. So obviously I grew up watching superhero cartoons and Spider-Man and X-Men were my favorite ones to watch. I was especially drawn to stories of regular people getting supernatural powers or becoming extraordinary through some form of form of genetic mutation. <clears throat> now, those kind of mutations are certainly entertaining and thought-provoking. I'm sure many of us have wondered what kind of superpower we would want or how we would react if uh, Professor Charles Xavier came knocking on our door. But we aren't talking about that type of genetic mutation today. So what are we talking about? What actually is a gene mutation? So gene mutation is basically when a change occurs in the way the information of the gene is arranged or presented. Now, the good news is a lot of these changes are very minor and cause minimal issues or no issues at all, but there are some that can be very major and cause significant issues. So how do we get mutations? Well, <clears throat> as Dr. Bowser was talking about, we inherit a lot. We get a lot from our parents, and uh, Dr. Craig is going to talk a lot more about this here in a bit as well. Um, <clears throat> so mutations we inherit through the parents come through the germ cells, which is the sperm and the egg, and then we have those in all the cells of our body because that's our genetic makeup. <clears throat> so these mutations are likely to be present in every cell of the body. Now we can also get other uh, mutations throughout our life, and these are acquired or somatic mutations. And these can be caused by environmental factors, which we're going to touch in more detail in another episode. But some similar, or some examples are UV radiation from the sun, your diet. EMF exposure, traumas, and more. <clears throat> so acquired mutations are usually localized to a tissue or a region of the body, meaning they are not present throughout the whole body like inherited mutations. So what kind of gene mutations are possible? Well, there are very many different types of changes that can occur. And I want to reinforce that we are attempting to take some very complex concepts and mechanisms and explain them in a simple and effective and useful manner. With that in mind, I want you to imagine the information in your DNA as a paragraph or even a chapter of a story, and I'll explain these different types of mutations from that analogy. So, 
Uh, some typical uh, DNA sequence mutations. We have a missense mutation. This is when one base pair of the DNA is substituted with another. This would be similar to a typo where the wrong letter is used, but the length of a word doesn't change. Nonsense mutation. This occurs when one DNA base pair is altered, so it ends protein synthesis early. It's like changing a letter in a word to a period, which stops the sentence before it is completed. And shortened proteins typically do not function properly or do not function at all. Um, we can also have insertion or deletion. This is where we add something in or take away. And again, that's going to change how the information is read, how it's interpreted, and then later on expressed. We can duplicate. Um, so this would be when something is copied once, twice, or many times. It's kind of like if you're typing and one of your keys gets stuck, uh, and then all of a sudden you have like five O's at the end of hello if you're typing that. Um, so then there are some other... Um, uh, mutations where it can kind of change the where you start reading at. So it's called a frame shift mutation. Again, repeat. So there's a lot of different aspects that we can change or modify how the information is being read or interpreted. And the DNA sequence um, mutations, those are typically going to be in smaller segments. We can also have chromosomal mutations where the whole uh, genome is copied or deleted, or we have kind of a lot of the similar aspects where we're uh, making a lot of those same changes, either moving, inverting, adding, deleting. We're doing those on a much bigger scale. So it's kind of like taking paragraphs instead of sentences or words. Okay. So how do gene mutations affect health and development? Well, like uh, Dr. Luke was talking about how proteins are made and created and expressed. Um, mutations lead to proteins that, again, don't function correctly or perhaps not at all. And this can be very significant depending on what type of protein it's creating. Um, like Dr. Luke said, that could be some part of the immune system, could be part of your brain, could be part of your liver, could be part of all sorts of different things going on. And where it, at, where it occurs and what it changes is going to have a significant impact or not, depending on what it is. Um, <clears throat> now, like I said, only a small percentage of mutations actually result in genetic disorders, meaning most mutations have little or no impact at all on the health or development. The reason for this is the mutation may have altered the sequence without actually changing the function of the protein being made, or because the body has so many repair mechanisms, as it's being interpreted, as it's being expressed, there's a lot of repair factors that can go on and correct that before it's actually a finished product in the protein. So there are a lot of different aspects that can change from this. Um, we're not going to get into all the different diseases, but some common ones that you might be familiar with is like trisomy 21 Down syndrome, if we have an extra 21 uh, chromosome, or uh, Turner syndrome, where uh, one X chromosome is taken out from females and they don't have uh, the both X chromosomes that they normally would. These can cause all sorts of changes and uh, can be very serious impacts on health and development overall. Again, we're not going to go into great depth on all this stuff right now because that would take forever. And I mean, we could go on and on and on and uh, just like your DNA information, if you actually expanded, that would go on and on and on forever, right? So the important thing that we want to talk about is these mutations, especially the ones that occur later in life that are required, they're what we call multifactorial or complex disorders. And that's when one factor or more or more than one factor causes a trait or health problem 
um, such as a birth defect or chronic illness. So some of these factors can include nutrition, lifestyle, uh, drug use, different types of medicines, a certain illness, pollution. Um, and, you know, again, we're going to cover a lot of these in greater detail, more specifically uh, in other episodes. So as we lead into Dr. Craig's uh, talk, what does it mean to have a genetic predisposition to a disease? So we talked about how certain um, genomes or certain um, segments can be um, can make you more likely or more susceptible to certain things. Dr. Luke mentioned cancer. And to me, that made me think of uh, stories of some certain celebrities that actually had double mastectomies because they had a certain genetic predisposition to breast cancer. Now, there was no guarantee that it was going to be expressed or develop into actual breast cancer, but it was a possibility. And that's what they deemed was their most or their uh, desirable solution to that. Um, takeaway sins, I just want you guys to know that there are many different types of genetic variations, mutations that can occur. Again, many result in no issues or minor issues, but there are some that can cause dynamic changes. Again, we're going to go talk much more about how these, um, different cycles, different parts of the methylation affect a lot of this in other episodes. Um, but that's just kind of a... Uh, overview of what's going on. So just because a mutation is present does not necessarily mean it will be expressed. All right, Dr. Craig, go ahead and take it away. Thanks, Dr. Caleb. So I just want to touch on six things real quick related to what we inherit in our genetic uh, coding. First, what I want to talk about is when something is inherited or people say this runs within my family, what does that actually mean? Well, what it actually means is obviously more than one person has a condition. And it's interesting because there's three stages or levels of connection when it comes to a genetic aspect. First, you have your parents and siblings, which is the, the number one. Second comes to grandparents, aunts, uncles, nieces, and nephews. And then third is first cousins. The other thing that I thought was really interesting about this is determining whether or not it's truly a genetic condition or it's a lifestyle environment issue. Because people that grow up in the same household tend to think the same way, eat the same way, live the same way have the same lifestyle. And it's really important to determine is what I'm dealing with a true genetic issue or is it more just a lifestyle issue? And one of the best ways, obviously, is get your DNA, or your DNA tested. And I would highly recommend that to anybody that's interested in that. Second, I want to talk about, well, why is that important? It's important to understand your DNA because as Dr. Caleb mentioned, then we know what our predispositions are. As he also said too, and what I think is very important is just because you have the predisposition doesn't necessarily mean it's going to manifest, but it's important to be aware because for one, you can take preventative and even other steps to try to help modify the intensity of it. The other thing that I think is important to, to take into account here as well is just because you have it, don't assume you're going to have it. Because like we talked about in our previous series, stress and mindset play a huge factor in what we experience within our life. And this really ties in, as Dr. Luke said, to our epigenetic aspect as well. So third one I'm going to touch on real quickly is the different ways we can have a genetic condition uh, transmitted to us. You can either have it through just one mutated gene or a combination of mutated genes. I'm not going to go into the one because of combinations because that gets way too in-depth, but I want to touch on just quickly six aspects if you're dealing with a mutated gene. First, you have what's called autosomal dominant, which means if you have one mutated gene, you're going to have the condition or you're highly likely to have the condition. 
An example would be Huntington's disease. The second is autosomal recessive, which means in order for you to have the condition, you actually have to have both gene, genes from both parents to have the condition. An example of this would be cystic fibrosis. Next, what's interesting is you can have what's called X-linked dominant, which means it's only on the X chromosome, which means it can't come from a father passing it on to his sons because that only, he only passes on the Y chromosome. So an example of this would be fragile X syndrome. And then you can also have an X-linked recessive, which would be hemophilia. The one I found interesting is you have a co-dominant, <laughs> which means you have two different versions that are dominant in this. And a great example of this is our blood type. An AB blood type has parents that have two of the dominant genes. And then the last one's kind of been mentioned already, but I thought it was really interesting is mitochondrial DNA which can actually only come from the mother because she is the only one, her egg is the only thing that contributes to the mitochondrial DNA. So with that in mind, I, I want to touch on this. I thought was kind of interesting is, okay, what are the chances if a parent has a genetic condition, what's the likelihood for you to have it? So if it's an autono it's autosomal dominant, you have a 50-50 shot of getting it. Whereas if it's autosomal recessive, you only have a 25%. Now, when you get into X-linked dominant, it gets really interesting because it depends on whether or not the condition is in the mother or the father. Because if it's in the father, he only passes on the Y to his son, so his sons will never get the condition. Whereas if, but he passes on his X to his daughters, he can pass it on. So you really basically have about a 50% chance there. Same thing with the X-linked recessive. Um, the co-dominant kind of depends on the situation. The one that I found really interesting, again, was the mitochondrial. So because the condition is in the mother, interestingly, she can pass it on to both her sons or her daughters. So a male can have the condition, he just can't pass it on. But if the mother has it, 100% of her children are going to get it. Next, what I want to touch on real quick, Dr. Caleb mentioned trisomy 21. Can chromosomal disorders like that be inherited? It is possible, but most of the time these disorders are not passed on from one generation to the next. Yeah, exactly. Last one I want to talk about real quickly is what about some of these genetic conditions that seem to hit particular ethnic groups? Like, for example, um, sickle cell anemia in the African and American African uh, communities. To simplify that, what that basically says is this goes very far back in your ancestry. You have a common uh, ancestry that, is, that this genetic coding is in. So this isn't a recent modification. This is a long-term, multiple-generation issue. So with that in mind, I'm going to let Dr. Kyson finish. All right. So great information so far here. So I'm going to come in. I'm going to talk a little about human traits. So we just talked about how some of these things get passed on. So the first thing I want to talk about is fingerprints. So as you know, all of our fingerprints are unique, which is why they've been long used to identify individuals, usually in criminal activity so but surprisingly little is known about the factors that influence a person's fingerprints like many complex traits studies suggest that both genetic and environmental factors play a role each person's fingerprints are based on a pattern on their skin ridges called dermatoglyphs on the pads of the fingers dermatoglyphs develop before birth and remain the same throughout life the ridges begin to develop during the third month of fetal development and they are fully formed by the sixth month 
The function of these ridges is not entirely clear, but they are likely to increase sensitivity to touch. The basic size, shape, and spacing of the dermatic glyphs appear to be influenced by genetic factors. Studies suggest that multiple genes are involved, so that an inheritance pattern is not straightforward. Genes that control our development of the various layers of skin, as well as the muscles, fat, and blood vessels underneath the skin, may all play a role in determining the pattern of the ridges. So let's talk about eye color. So a person's eye color results from pigmentation of the structure called the iris, which surrounds the black hole in the center called the pupil, which controls how much light can enter the eye. The color of the iris ranges on a continuum from very light blue to dark brown. Most of the time, eye color is categorized as blue, green hazel, or brown. Brown is the most frequent eye color in the world. Lighter eye colors such as blue and green are usually exclusively found from people of European ancestry. Eye color is determined by variations in a person's genes. Most of the genes associated with eye color are involved with the production, transport, and storage of a pigment called melanin. Eye color is directly related to the amount and quality of melanin in the front layers of the iris. People with brown eyes have a large amount of melanin in the iris, while people with blue eyes have much less of this. A particular region on chromosome 15 plays a major role in the eye color. Within this region, there are two genes located very close together, the OCA2 and the HERC2, or OCA2 and HERC2. I tell you, some of these, some of these things get really complicated trying to keep track of this alphabetic soup. The protein produced from the OCA2, known as the P protein, is involved in the maturation of the melanosomes, which are the cellular structures that produce the store and store melanin. A region of the, of the nearby HERC2 gene known as interon 86 contains a segment of DNA that controls the activity or the expression of the OCA2 gene, turning it on or off as needed. At least one of the polymorphisms in this area of HERC2 gene has been shown to reduce the expression of OCA2, which leads to less melanin in the iris and a lighter colored eye. Several of these genes play smaller roles in determining eye color. Some of these genes are also involved in skin coloring and hair coloring. Genes that reported roles in eye color also include, <clears throat> get ready for this, ACIP, AC, no, sorry, ASIP, IRF4, SLC4A4, SLC4A5, SLC4A5, TPCN2, and TYR. Oh, man. That it? Yeah. That so far. That's what they know so far. <laughs> and to produce a continuum of the eye colors in different people. So it's not just blue, green, and brown. There's variations of that that go beyond that to grays and everything else. So it's just interesting to see how this spreads out. So one last thing I want to kind of touch on here is like most aspects of human behavior, cognition, we're going to talk about intelligence. How smart are you? Intelligence is a complex trait that is influenced by both genetic and environmental factors like we've alluded to in many of these other topics today. Intelligence is, a, is challenging to study in part because it's hard to define it and measure it, and there's a whole lot of different ways to look at it. Most definitions of intelligence include the ability to learn from, experiences, adapt to changing environments. Elements of intelligence include the ability to reason, to plan, to solve problems, to think abstractly, and to understand complex ideals. Many studies rely on a measure of intelligence called 
an IQ test or intelligent quotient test. And they've conducted many studies to look for genes that influence intelligence. Many of these studies have focused on similarities and differences of IQ within families, particularly looking at adopted children and twins. These studies suggest that genetic factors underlie about 50% of the difference in intelligence among individuals. Other studies have examined variations across entire genomes of many people, an approach called genome-wide association studies to determine whether a specific area of the genome or are associated with IQ. These studies have not conclusively identified any genes that underlying differences in intelligence. So our intelligence may not be genetically related, which we've all wondered that. <laughs> or only a portion of it is. <laughs> so factors related to a child's home, environment, parenting, education, availability of learning resources, and nutrition, among others, all contribute to intelligence. A person's environment and genes influence each other. And I think we've kind of talked about that quite a bit here today. I've had several patients that when I've talked to them, they go, oh my gosh, my child has MTHFR. I'm like, okay. And they're like, well, what does that mean for them? And there's so much out there, I think, that's been spread and has caused so much angst. I'm going to use angst. Yeah, that's a good word. Concern. You know, and, and parents, especially of young kids, are like, what does this mean for the future of my child? It may have nothing to do with it. It may have a lot to do with it. The key is to figure out how to address that accordingly. And so, obviously, having stress and anxiety about this is not the right answer. We covered that in our last series. So, don't stress <laughs> about it. We can figure things out, and there are options to go through that. So We can rebuild the, you. Yeah, we can make <laughs> you stronger. Six million dollar man. So are genetic deficiencies correctable? So this is the question that we are still learning about. And while there's a lot of research going into the future of this complex idea, there's gene treatment therapies, all kinds of things they're looking at for that. There's addressing uh, your diet, changing your diet, increasing certain dietary supplementation to address these areas of concern. And while one of the, and while this is something that we specialize in, is finding these underlying things that can play into it or change the expression or suppression of these genetic issues, one of the large things that we always have to look at is stealth infections. And it's only stealth infection because they haven't found it. And these can really manipulate the chemistry of our body, change how we methylate, change how we structure, are structured and how we operate. And so it's really important. So if this is something you're interested in, all of us doctors here, we work in this field, we deal with this, we've been doing this for a decade now. And one of the big things is we are looking at all the other things that play into it besides just looking at your genome. It it's, it's a picture, it tells us something that's going on, but going back and understanding everything else that's actually being active in your body that we need to work on and work on this complex situation, we're here to help with that. It's interesting you brought up the difference between genes and, and epigenetics. So we talked about gene therapy. We're not talking about that here. No, we're not. Uh, genetic therapy is where we know there's a, a condition that's a major problem. What we're referencing on is what we do daily. That's the epigenetic side of this. And that's what we have great treatment results with. So good. Thank you for listening to the Docera Digest podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find all the episodes and show notes over at doceralifecenter.com. While you're on the website, also be sure to check out the blog where you'll find videos and articles to help you proactively rebalance your health.